This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas State Technical College has Texas covered. With 10 campuses across the state, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. Learn more at tstc.edu. And Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for February 3rd, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for the Texas Tribune. I'm reporting live from my bedroom as I hide from my children who have been home for school for the fourth straight day. And the reason for that, as you all know, is a ma another major winter storm passed through Texas this week, leaving hundreds of thousands of residents without power. Um, it's late Friday as we record this, and more than 200,000 homes and businesses still remain in the dark. Most of them have gone days without electricity, and that, of course, comes about two years after the 2021 winter storm knocked out power for more than 4 million customers. Back then, it was the state's power grid, which didn't have enough supply to keep up with a massive spike in demand. This time, the grid has held up, but the trees and ice damage have knocked out power lines. In Austin alone, more than 100,000 customers remain without power as we record this. Joining me to talk about this today are Michael Weber, a professor of energy resources at the University of Texas. Hi, Michael. Hey there. Good to see you. Yes, thanks for joining us. And Aaron Douglas, our environmental reporter for the Tribune. Hey, Aaron. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Well, I wouldn't say good, actually, but, you know, <laughs> doing okay. <laughs> uh, so, Aaron, I want to just start with you. I mean... I think most of our listeners know the gist of this, but just kind of set it up for us. What happened this week? Why are so many homes still in the dark? Yeah, so essentially what happened is much of Central and North Texas got a few days of freezing rain. And what happens during freezing rain is precipitation comes down from the sky. And when it doesn't have time to freeze as it's falling, but temperatures on the ground remain below freezing, it freezes on contact. And then what you end up having having is very thick layers of ice forming across all the vegetation, across all the power lines, across our roads. And you know, you guys saw it. So I'm sure a lot of people are aware of what exactly that means once it occurs. But that's what happened with the weather. And when that happens, if you have too much freezing rain and the ice begins to build up and build up, it adds a lot of weight to the vegetation and to the power lines. And so then what happens is you hear a bunch of cracking branches, you hear a bunch of trees falling, and they take the power lines down with them, or the power lines may snap on their own, and you have outages. And so essentially what we're having is just a huge amount of local outages across the central Texas area and up in North Texas as well. Um, I was also seeing a few in, out in West Texas. So uh, this is a very significant event. Uh, however, it is, it's different, as you pointed out, from the event that we experienced during 2021. Yeah. So, Michael, I want to ask you, you know, help, help us as Texans determine how frustrated we should be with our government right now. I mean, I feel like there's there's two different possible reactions to this, one being you know, we, we, this is two years from a major electricity disaster. This is a sign that Texas and the state is, 
you know, in, in the cities are unable to prepare and handle, you know, storms that in other parts of the country would be considered just, you know, an average February week. On the other hand, you could say, you know, I live in a tree lined street. When, when I walked down my street on Wednesday, it looked as though, as though the trees were bowing down to the cars that were passing through. I mean, how much can you actually do to prevent tree branches from, from, from falling on power lines? I suspect maybe the answer is somewhere in between those two arguments, but but I mean, how should Texans be feeling about their government's ability to kind of protect themselves from these disasters right now? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's plenty of room for frustration and we should expect a lot from our leaders at the city, county and state level. At the same time, this was an epic storm. I mean, uh, I think the last time we had a freeze anywhere close this bad was 2007. But some people I've been talking to say it's been like 40 years. So these kind of storms don't happen every year the way they might happen in, say, the Pacific Northwest or the upper Midwest or something. So we don't really design our system for this for a yearly basis, but we do know it can happen. So there is some preparation for it. But I think it's pretty frustrating that the energy capital of the world can't get its energy act together. Uh, and that seems to happen at every level. It is frustrating that we have trouble making decisions to prepare for the fact that weather is becoming more intense and changing. And by the way, this weather isn't in isolation. This freeze is coming after a major drought a few months ago, right? And that drought killed a lot of trees or weakened branches, which made them more prone to collapse when you have ice. This reminds me of 2011, where we had the Groundhog Day freeze on February 2nd, 2011, so almost to the day 12 years ago. And that was really horrible and had power outages and people died and rotating outages. And then we had epic heat wave later and, and drought later that summer. So we kind of have these weather patterns in twos, it feels like at least. So I think there's room for frustration, but it was a tough storm. My street was impassable. So many trees have fallen into the street and neighboring blocks were also impassable without chainsaws. So it's not like we should expect the cities to prepare for a once every 40 year storm for every year. At the same time, we knew this kind of thing was coming. So I think we can expect more. Yeah, well, Aaron, I mean, this is um, uh, kind of your area of expertise here. You, you write a lot about climate for the Tribune and things like that. And I mean, one of the arguments we've been hearing is, you know, oh, this is a particularly bad storm, but you know, are we in a situation where these particularly bad storms seem to be happening more and more often, right? You hear this about floods, right? Is a 100-year flood really a 100-year flood anymore? Is a 10-year storm or a 100-year storm, winter storm, that same thing anymore? I mean, what do we know about, like, should we be planning for a world where this is happening more? Yeah, I think a good way to think about this is that climate change affects everything because climate change is sort of happening over the long-term scale, but climate change, we don't necessarily know how climate change is impacting any particular event. And so when I was talking to climate scientists about this particular event, an ice storm that happens in Texas, you know, we don't know based off of the science, whether this is something that is going to happen more or less frequently. It may actually happen less frequently if winters become more and more mild, but like the, the, the fact is like we don't have the evidence about ice storms from climate change in the same way that we have evidence around um, extreme heat occurrences in Texas. And that is something that's been like studied in depth. And, you know, we're the scientific community is largely in agreement about that. I would also point out that the February 2021 winter storm 
was different in that it was related to a polar vortex. And there's some debate in the scientific community about, um, you know, how much that may have been impacted by climate change. And so I think that what this sort of event underscores, though, is that our infrastructure is not built to like withstand deviations beyond like what is kind of typical for our regional climate. And so if climate change is making other types of weather events, such as drought more intense or extreme heat uh, more frequent and hotter on average, and then we have this ice storm, which is showing us how fragile our infrastructure is, I think it's reasonable uh, to go to our elected officials and say, okay, like the infrastructure is failing. It's failing in storms that happen, you know, once a year, according to the state climatologists, we get freezing rain, like on average about once a year along I-35. So, you know, it's just one of those things where like, maybe we should be looking at how to harden our infrastructure along a whole range of weather events. Um, and <laughs> I think that climate change sort of uh, behooves us to, to really think about that. And I would say that it, it was already hard before you include climate change, just because we have, what is it, like 165 people a day moving to Austin, something like that. And each person needs something like $80,000 of infrastructure, water, wastewater, electricity, telecom. And that doesn't include the soft infrastructure of libraries and additional government services. That's just the hard stuff. And then you add on top of that additional number of people times $80,000 every day of infrastructure hardening improvements expansion. We need this weirder weather. Is what you said, like the scientific community knows it's going to get warmer. And this is confounding in the winter because it means prevailing average temperature in the winter is going to become milder. Yet it also means weakening of the jet stream, which means these wild winter storms happen maybe more intensively and more frequently. So it'll be warmer on average, yet cold snaps might be more frequent and deeper, either wetter or colder. And that's kind of hard to plan for a colder winter when winters will be warmer on average. That's the confounding nature of this, which is just an exacerbate on top of a lot of people are moving here. We need to build a lot of stuff, just the fact, you know, to accommodate the fact that we have population growth. Michael, are we worse at this than other states? I mean, I do think that, I, I mean, just as an observer of the news, you hear about winter storms passing, you know, through different areas and you hear about power outages. Is it really that unusual? Are we all equally bad or is Texas a uniquely bad offender in this realm? Texas is pretty bad. Uh, so we designed for the summer. So the things that might uh, not make our grid break, like the heat wave might make the grid break in say New England somewhere because they don't design for the summer. So we're, we're designing for a different season in the first place, but we do have bad grid reliability overall, not even including, including winter storm Uri. We just don't invest in it. There are a couple of reasons for this. And I think the primary cultural motivation for this, I say, is we're pretty cheap. And if you have the choice between paying for the cheap thing or the more expensive thing that's more reliable, we tend to choose cheap and just take the outages as a part of the cost of doing business. And I frankly, personally, would rather invest more in a better system that's more robust I'll say I lived in Paris for a while and in, in Europe, they've got a whole different model. They invest for and regulate for reliability as a bigger priority. And so they harden the system. They have a lot more of their wires underground. The grid in Europe is much more reliable than the grid in Texas, but they have a whole different approach. Like they, they'd rather build something that's not going to break as often, which is different than the Texas approach. Sure. So this has been called by some on the internet, the Oak 
oak apocalypse, right? Oak because apocalypse. it was the uh, the oak trees. I mean, not always. It was all different kinds of trees, but a lot of different trees that seem to be breaking and really causing the damage, as you mentioned, Aaron. Is there any climate aspect to this? Or any indication that the trees were weaker? I mean, you were kind of looking into the tree question yesterday. Yeah, yeah. As as Michael mentioned earlier. I spoke to some tree experts from a, uh, from the tree perspective, and yeah, as Michael mentioned, the drought may have resulted in a lot more dead limbs on trees, and if you didn't maintain proper maintenance on your trees, then that might have made them more likely to snap. Overall, it was the sheer amount of ice that were on trees, and then also the types of trees that we have in Texas are, uh, in this part of Texas, often keep their leaves throughout this part of the season. So the live oaks in particular. And then if you still have vegetation on those, then it's more surface area that's freezing and then contributing to that weight. So yeah, a lot of a lot of fights about how much tree maintenance to do right now and whether Austin Energy was uh, doing its due diligence and maintaining those trees near power lines. Yeah, so I have to confess... I was actually in Colorado for the beginning of this winter storm and flew in um, on Wednesday night. So I missed the beginning, but it was very surreal to be in a place where it was negative one degrees and to be reading about how back home it was, you know, 30 degrees, but, you know, the 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 city was falling apart. Uh, but of course, that's part of the problem, right, is when it's like, I think what uniquely hit Austin here was the type of precipitation, right? If it had been snow, it might have been different. But the fact that it was, you know, sleet or ice that really layered these trees, particularly yeah. when that might have been the problem. And one thing I was also going to point out too is that with the trees, the Austin Energy has been saying that they've had issues with residents slowing down the process essentially of maintaining proper pruning. I had the Austin Energy spokesperson tell me around 40% of Austin homeowners delay the utilities trimming work with questions or disputes around those plans. And then they also have a backlog due to like avoiding disturbing bird habitats and avoid spreading oak wilt, which are all, these are all things that, you know, we want to prioritize, I think, as a society, which is like not disturbing bird habitats and like not angering property owners and like having good communication with them. But it does kind of come with that trade-off, which I think Michael can also talk about a little bit with based off of his experience. Yeah, and happy to. And I would say one more thing. You came from Colorado. You said the trees are different in Colorado. Sure. They're taller and thinner. And so redwoods or fir trees or Douglas or the piney, these different trees and areas that get freezes every year have a different shape than the widespread broad canopy of a live oak or even some of the cedars that grow at an angle in the hills. So the trees are different. But also, if you have a freeze every year, it trims the trees for you every year. But if you get a freeze every 16 years or every 40 years, whatever it is for us, we, we don't have that regular trimming that nature does for us. So it sets up the problem being a little worse here because the trees are different and because we don't have the weather year in and year out. And I think that the Aaron's mentioned like tree trimming, like there's a lot of resistance to the tree trimming. And when I was on the Electric Utility Commission, Austin Energy, that was 2008 to 2013, we talked about vegetation management a lot. And it was a big issue because the utility knew that need to trim trees to improve the reliability of the distribution system. The distribution system are those wires and poles in our neighborhoods. The transmission system are the bigger, taller towers that move power, say, from West Texas to the city. And we the trees are more of a risk for the distribution level in our neighborhoods. This is known, 
but so many people resist it because they love the trees and we, the trees are beautiful and they give us shade and they give us um, ecosystem services and they improve uh, water retention of the soil and air quality and they're just lovely right that's why we like boston that's probably because of the trees and so if the utility comes in and chops down the trees to make room for the wires that make people mad there's a lot of resistance uh, I mean, there's not like any one or two people, it was hundreds or thousands of people that really resisted very loudly about this. So they switched from sort of chopping the trees to doing these V-shaped cuts where these trees are growing around the wires. They would do a V-cut so the, the branches would go on either side of the wire so that when they fall, they'd fall away from the wires rather than just chopping it shorter underneath the wires. And it was just like a constant battle to do that. And Aaron said, like, it's still happening. People are still angry. In Austin Energy doesn't want to run roughshod over its customers and just say, well, we're going to cut down the tree anyway. There's a whole lot of engagement. They do door hangers and information inserts in their bills and door knocking and phone calls to say, we're going to be trimming in your neighborhood. So it's just complicated because the well, tree- that all takes there. time. That all takes time. And then we have this backlog of vegetation that totally. hasn't been cut is how I understand it. Yeah. And in my house, in my house is in the woods. I actually had six outages over an hour long over the span of about a year. I'm in Austin Energy Service territory. Each one of those outages was from trees touching wires. And over the last year or so, Austin Energy did a very thorough vegetation management for our neighborhood. We didn't have outages. So where they can do the management, there aren't outages, but we also had a lot of problems before that, which made it a high priority neighborhood to, to fix. Well, if there was ever a time to uh, get the message out and you know try to push back against some of that resistance, now seems to be that time. You know, maybe people will be a little bit more willing to let the the crews into their yards to do this work. Uh, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges are the state's economic engine for recovery. Our colleges provide credentials that meet regional and local workforce demands. Visit TACC.org for more. And Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about what could be done to prevent something like this from happening again. Um, Michael, you talked a little bit about the idea of being cheap now might be more expensive later and everything like that. But I mean, what could have been done to better mitigate against something like this happening or what should be done in the coming weeks, months, years to try to prevent something like this ha from happening again? There are kind of four approaches for this in areas that are heavily wooded and hilly. And it's not just the trees. The trees are a big problem. But also the hills don't help because that means the trees might be growing at an angle uh, and that creates more risk for falling and that kind of thing. Uh, one is you can trim the trees back, which is what Austin Energy is doing now. It's pretty standard. It's pretty typical around the nation. It's not unusual that Austin Energy is doing it. You could bury the lines underground. You can elevate the lines so they're higher up above the canopy, above the tree line. Or you can eliminate wires and poles altogether and everyone has their own like diesel or natural gas generator home or solar panels and batteries. Those are kind of the four options. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if we all have diesel or natural gas generators or solar panels and batteries at home, they're either too noisy or too dirty or too expensive and everyone can afford it, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If you make the power lines taller, so they're above the tree liner canopy, that works for a while, but maybe the trees catch up in height at some point, but also that's hideously ugly. Uh, I don't know who wants to see all the power lines that way, but we do that with transmission lines with a bigger power, higher voltage lines. We put them up higher because we don't want them to touch the trees because they might spark fires and uh, they have so much power for so many people. If a tree knocks it out, it'd really be devastating. And then we could put them below ground, which actually is my personal favorite. That's a lot more expensive to do, 
but then is much more robust against wind and falling trees. And frankly, that's what a lot of uh, new subdivisions do in Austin by requirement. City of Austin says put your utilities underground for new subdivisions, new developments. Mm-hmm. But it's also what Europe does. They put a lot more of the lines underground and they don't fall over when it's windy. So that's my personal favorite, but Austin Energy would tell you it's pretty pricey. But those are the four options. And I would say that it's time for us to invest more in doing it better so we don't have a multi-billion dollar outage every once in a while. Let's make the system more robust. That's better for us in the long run. And I think the transmission and distribution lines are kind of ugly personally. And then I think our houses would be worth more if we didn't have these power lines that were so visible. So we'd make the money back and higher tax revenues from property assessments and our homes would be worth more. So there, there are four ways to go about it. My personal favorite is burying the lines, but hard to do if you have a lot of limestone and bedrock like we do in Austin. Sure. I mean, but we're, I think this came up at an Austin Energy press conference yesterday, and I believe they said we're, they'd be talking about, you know, upwards of a million dollars per mile to bury some of these lines. Yeah. Texas Monthly reported on California they said it cost them $2.5 million to in efforts to bury their lines. That was more of a wildfire mitigation yeah. strategy. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars. And of course, Michael, as you pointed out earlier, Texas doesn't love to spend a lot of money. I mean, do you see that as a realistic? So it, it's interesting because yeah, you might spend billions to put transmission lines underground in California. But if you avoid one wildfire that would have been sparked, it pays for itself. Mm-hmm. And in Austin Energy, we're talking about a billion dollars, maybe two, maybe over 10 or 20 years. It's like 50 to $100 million a year. That's not a trivial amount of money. But then if you have power when other people don't, it gives you enhanced economic competitiveness, which would pay for itself. And you don't have as many people dying. I'm thinking like all the local grocery stores have thrown out all their food because they lost power. And that's like $100,000 of food thrown away per grocery store. So it pays for itself. That's my view. The thing about Texas is, we just say, well, we'll do the cheap system and take it on the chin when it happens. But the rich people will more likely have generators and backup. Mm-hmm. And so the inequities of this system get exacerbated when there's an outage. And I would say actually paying more for a more hardened, robust system will be more equitable because not everyone can't afford to pay for their own generator, but they can pay a little bit more for electricity that's reliable. So that's kind of my view on this. But we're pretty cheap. And I think that sort of separates uh, the haves and the have nots in some ways, because the cheapness can be supplemented by those who are rich to build their own backup. Yeah. What do you think about, oh, sorry. What do you think about the criticism that if you bury them underground, if you have a problem underground, it like takes longer to restore power and it's more expensive? Yeah. So generally speaking, underground lines are more expensive to install. They take longer to repair if there's a problem. And so these are the trade-offs, but they fail so seldom that it usually works out. So instead of having a failure often, you'll rarely have a failure and then it takes a lot to fix it. They don't have the problems from wind and ice. They do have uh, some problems with flooding. So we have floods in Austin. We got to worry about that. So you have to make sure your systems are watertight and you can't have some nesting critters that build, you know, homes down there. So, you, so they're not perfect, but they're much more robust. They fail so seldom. Um, that it, it tends to pay for itself. In fact, we already do it in downtown Austin. It's underground because we don't want to see the lines everywhere. New York does it. Urban uh, underground lines is very common. It's more at the edges or the suburbs where we start to see overhead lines. And I, I think most analysis shows that if you include the full life cycle, the cost, including the repairs, including the property tax values of the homes that are prettier when they don't have overhead lines, including the value of not losing power, it pays for itself. That's what European nations, that's what big cities have already concluded, I think it's something we need to consider in Texas. 
So we are, of course, in the middle of a legislative session right now. Um, I've actually been a little bit surprised not to see much piling on among our kind of state's leadership of, of Austin as, as this kind of crisis has unfolded. Um, maybe, you know, they're remembering when it was the state's problem two years ago, and that has something to do with that. But I mean, would you have recommendations for lawmakers to things to be thinking about over these next couple of months? It's a great question. Austin is sort of like a whipping boy or scapegoat for the, the legislature. They love to beat up on Austin or target Austin, especially tar Austin Energy. Yeah, it seems to generate a lot of ire from the legislature. And they've been silent so far. I noticed that too. I've been wondering when they would say something, but it's not just Austin Energy that's had trouble, right? Encore is having trouble. And uh, Pertinous Electric Co-op also had what, 100,000 meters or something. I can't remember, 100,000 people about power. So there are big numbers outside of Austin. It's not just like it's the urban Democrats that are having trouble. It's also rural Republicans. And so it's hard to make this a, a partisan political case when the damage was so widespread and that there are so many issues. So that might be part of it, but we'll see. Um, there's a lot of reasons why they might come back around. Sure, sure. All right. Well, before we go, I should, you know, remark on the fact that we seem to be playing kind of uh, environmental disaster whack-a-mole, right? So, you know, you have a hurricane, you spend a lot of time talking about that hurricane, then a drought hits, then a winter storm polar vortex hits and you're talking about ERCOT fixes. And then of course, now we're talking about local issues as well, but the ERCOT, the situation with ERCOT is not fully resolved. There has been a, you know, PUC market redesign attempting to try to address, address some of those issues. Um, that is likely to be a controversial issue during this session as well. Can you just quickly, Michael, give us your assessment on the work that the state has done post-2021 to try to prevent that kind of problem from happening again? Yeah, it's sort of fascinating. If you look back at uh, the winter storm in February 2021, there were two fundamental problems. One is the gas system froze and the power system froze. And almost all the legislative scrutiny and attention was on the power system with new requirements to winterize and harden the power plants so that they wouldn't freeze. But there was almost no attention, scrutiny, or sort of requirement of the gas system to improve. So the gas system can still freeze up. In fact, it froze up a few weeks ago. We lost like 22% of our gas production from freeze-offs. It froze up a year ago. We lost like 15%. So the gas system's no more hardened today than it was two years ago, but the power system is. So there's been some improvement, but not complete improvement. But all of those issues two years ago didn't really address transmission and distribution, which is the problem we're having with the ice now, which is really on the distribution level. It ignored that. And frankly, if you look at grid reliability around the world, the wires and poles are the biggest driver of reliability or lack of reliability. It's not really the power plants themselves that are the problem. It was two years ago, but that's unusual. And that's why it was notable. Really making the wires and poles more reliable is a key part of this. And that's almost done at the local level. And that requires these decisions about how much to invest in hardening. And in general, we don't want to spend the money, but I, I'd recommend we consider doing that. Well, it's February, which means it'll start getting hot in about two weeks. Um, so hopefully this is not a problem we will have to worry about at least this month. But we'll I think just... it's going to be 71 degrees on Monday. So, you know, problem solved, right? Just give it a few days and we're all done. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but that's uh, about all the time we have for today. Thank you, Michael, um, for your insight. Thank you, Aaron. I uh, really appreciate both of you all's uh, expertise on this. Uh, thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas State Technical College, Texas Biomed, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, and Educate Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. You